0: Hey guys, tonight is Christmas Eve, and I'll be reading The Spirits of Christmas, The Dark Side of the Holidays. I'll be right back. Grab your popcorn and snacks. Find a comfy spot, take a seat or lie down, and let me transport you to a place of fantasy, ghost stories, ancient legends, odd creatures, alien encounters, and other magical topics. You may even decide to join the conversation. From faraway lands to your own backyard, with a small dash of pixie dust, turn out the lights and open your minds. The journey is about to begin. Merry Christmas Eve, everybody. I hope everybody's having a good day. A good time today, getting together with their friends and family. I know I, I know I have some friends who are out there making some tamales, which is really cool. Uh, in fact, I'm going to be enjoying some tamales very shortly here. Uh, my name is Charlotte. I'm going to be your host for the next hour. I'm also the owner of the California Haas Paranormal Investigation Team. Based out of Sacramento, California, we are 45 strong up the Dallas State, which means if you have a paranormal problem, or you think you have a paranormal problem, We can get to you. It might take us a while because California is like this huge state, but we will get to you. And in the case that we can't get to you right away, we do have psychics on staff who can call you and uh, let me adjust this real quick. Trying to keep it up a little bit because it's hot in these lights. Who can call you? And in most cases, if it is something paranormal, they can calm things down for you until we can get out there. It won't take more than one or two days for us to get out to see you. Okay, that's that's what. Rest assured. Anyway, if you want to find us, we are on Facebook under California Haunts, California Haunts Ghostly Events, California Haunts Paranormal Investigation Team. Uh, we're also under um, Sacramento Sears, S E E R S, as in Greek Sears. Uh, you can find us over at Twitter under California Haunts, um, Twitch at Cal Haunts. We are California Haunts over at uh, TikTok, and YouTube is, California, is uh, youtube.com forward slash at California Haunts Radio. And we do have a meetup, and that's another California Haunts Paranormal Investigation team. Just And then put meetup, meetup.com. So that's how you can find us. If you're watching from Facebook today, a lot of you are, uh, you haven't done so already, and you, you, know, you like what you hear and see tonight or today, uh, please hit that follow button because we're always looking for followers. And also, if you want, go ahead and comment in the chat room. Go ahead and leave some thumbs up. Show us some love. Because what that does is it puts itself higher in the Facebook FYP and we can see by more people. Also, you know, if you have people, I mean, everybody's gotten together, right? Rogan's got a Santa cap on. Every, you know, everybody's gotten together now, so you got show own family around you. If you happen to be listening to the show in another room and you think somebody might be interested in this particular show, bring them on in, share, 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 share. Again, it's to get us out to more people. If, you, if you're watching from YouTube and you haven't done so already, please feel free to subscribe. It doesn't cost anything to subscribe. Um, same thing goes for YouTube. Comment and leave, show us some love because again, YouTube will put us up higher in their algorithm and share us out. Okay. If you're watching from Twitch, same thing. All right. All right. That being said, welcome and, uh, Christmas Eve. And so tonight we're trying changing it up a little bit because usually I will read from the night before Christmas and things like that. But I thought I've got these two great books, you know, the ones on Christmas traditions, which I'm going to be reading during the week. And we've also got this one by Sylvia Schultz, right? The Dark, um, yeah, The Spirits of Christmas, The Dark Side of the Holidays. I love this book, and I just, you know, it's just, it's, I can't say I can't say enough good things about this book. So we're going to be reading from that for a little under an hour today, and then that'll take you into Monday night and I have a guest scheduled for Monday, and I think you're going to like it. So let me get my tablet open, and without further ado, uh, The Spirits of Christmas, The Dark Side of the Holidays by Sylvia Schultz. And we do have, hang on a second. We do have permission, because she's from her, from Miss from Schultz and the publisher, to read this book. Okay? And I want to thank everybody over the weekend. We, we got a nice uh, donation from uh, Michelle, and uh, it, it was quite nice. Very nice of her to do that during the Christmas light tour. Last night was kind of funny, because old Sacramento, the Sacramento City, I think, kind of dropped the ball. You know, and I, and I said that when I shot the there we go when I shot the the video when we couldn't find a place to park. I'm handicapped, my producer's handicapped. We're not at the point where we use walkers or any scooters or anything, but still, you know, handicapped parking is nice to be close so we can you know so so we can walk to where we need to go. The way they had it set up, they blocked off a bunch of stuff. They were charging for valley parking, and all that and all that kind of thing. And it was like forty dollars for valley parking. And the two parking garages were fifteen dollars each for each car, and there's no guarantee once we're in there that there's a handicapped spot. But those are located so far away from where the event takes place that there's no way either of us could have could have walked in there. So it was sad, and I just and I don't think that we were the only ones that had that issue. And so I kind of think, and I hate to say it because I have a lot of respect for the city of Sacramento, but I kind of think they blew it. So um, hopefully we're gonna go, try and go out there Tuesday night. And it's open till the 30th. They're going to be performing on until the 30th. So it'll either be next Tuesday, which is the 27th, or next Thursday, which would be, what, the 29th, that we're going to try and get out there again. All right, so just uh, sit back and enjoy because uh, we're, we are going to get out there. Tomorrow night we're going to be at Cal Expo at, at Imaginarium with all the lights out there. And we're going to probably broadcast for about an hour out there. And let you guys see that light display. We were able to get out to uh, Devwood Court tonight, which is out in Orangevale, and uh, take you guys on some more Christmas lights. So that worked out. Okay, once again, I'm going to be reading this book. And I'm going to read for a little under an hour today. And uh, So you can enjoy your festivities, and I can enjoy my festivities with my family. So let me get this going here, and I will read, and away we go. I have an old tablet, you guys, so you have to be patient. Because on the initial startup, it will probably crash down and I'll have to push some more buttons for this. So uh, this book by Sylvia Schultz has uh modest stories, not very long stories, but more short stories than anything, about things that take that take place during Christmas and the and, and the winter. Winter stuff. So let me get this going back There we go. And uh some of it's grim. Some of it, you know, there is some positive stuff that comes out of it. But for the most part, of course, you know, the dark side, and that's exactly what it means, is the dark stuff that goes on during the winter and the holidays. And that's what this is about. You know, we already read about Krampus and and and, and all those uh, all those characters that, that, you know, they celebrate in Europe. And we're just going through the United States now and, and England and reading some stories. Some are Christmas stories. Some are stuff that's just happening in the winter. I just thought I'd let you, so just let you feel in. In fact, to give you an idea, let me uh, enlarge this. We're going to start with the attack on Pearl Harbor. Okay. So uh, here we go. And Karen Clark, thank you very much. She gifted me the Grinch. You see the Grinch? Here. I got a Grinch cup. So I'm going to look something about that. And it does get hot under these lights. So, okay, here we go. And like I said, I'm going to be reading for a little under an hour today. So let let me calculate something right now. Okay. So if I want to do that, I'm going to be reading. Okay. All right. I got it. Okay. So the attack on Pearl Harbor. December 7th, 1941. The day that we'll live in infamy began on a gorgeous sunny Sunday morning in Oahu, Hawaii. Beautiful place. Some of the military personnel stationed at Pearl Harbor on Fort Island were sitting down to breakfast. Others were going about their usual morning routines. Perhaps a few were ruminating on the current moral situation. In 1933, Japan had gone to war with China and was making noises about dragging the United States into the conflict. The top brass of the Navy decided to test Pearl Harbor's defensive capabilities. They staged a mock attack on the base. If the Navy was hoping to be encouraged by a ship shape, Responsive fighting force at the base, they were disappointed. The drill was a fiasco. The attackers mocked the floor with the defenders, and if it had been a real attack instead of a drill, the base would have been devastated. Oddly, though, not much was done to encourage the personnel to beef up their training and defenses. The Japanese kept rattling their swords, and the Navy kept the base at Pearl Harbor without any changes. On that Sunday morning in December, The lack of preparation led to tragedy. Kermit A. Tyler, a first lieutenant in the Army Air Force, was on duty at the Radar Information Center at Fort Shafter, also on Oahu. He He got a puzzled message from a radar operator who was stationed on the northern tip of the island. The operator, Private Joseph Lockhart, reported that he and another Private, George Elliott, had noticed an unusual blip on the radar that indicated a large number of aircraft headed toward the island. The radar indicated a group of planes about 130 miles away coming in fast. Quote, don't worry about it, Tyler said. He thought the planes were a flight of American B-17 bombers that was due in from the mainland. Those words were to haunt Tyler for the rest of his life. Forty-five minutes later, the first of two waves of Japanese aircraft arrived at Pearl Harbor. Bombs rained down on the unsuspecting base, turning the peaceful Sunday morning into a scene of confusion terror, fire, and blood. The Imperial Japanese Navy Air Service sent 360 planes to destroy the base, with 48 waiting in the wings for aerial combat. The first wave was the primary attack intended to catch the American forces off guard. The second wave had specific objectives. They were to attack the aircraft carriers first, then cruisers, and finally battleships. The Japanese aircraft were a savage array of firepower, fighter planes, torpedo bombers, and dive bombers that concentrated their fire on ground targets. The morning exploded in a hail of bullets, bombs, and shrapnel. Explosions shivered the blue water. Panic and flames swept the base. No one was spared. Women, civilians, nurses, all fell in a hail of destruction. When it was over, Pearl Harbor lay in ruins. All eight of the U.S. Navy battleships at the base were damaged and four of them were sunk. 188 planes were destroyed and 159 damaged, but the human toll was the worst. Over 2,000 people on the base were killed, 60 of them, sorry it itches up there, while eating breakfast. Another 1,178 were wounded, and America reeled with shock and horror. There are many battlegrounds that are haunted by the men who gave their lives there, but Pearl Harbor experiences a special kind of haunting. One even more tragic. The people, men and women, who were killed in the bombing of Pearl Harbor, did not fall in combat. They had no warning of their impending deaths, and they had no idea they were even on a battlefield until it was far too late. Many of them, including the personnel on the sunken battleships, were never given a proper burial. So it's not surprising that Pearl Harbor still teems with the spirits of those who lost their lives so suddenly. Paranormal phenomena have been reported all over Fort Island. Even residents of private homes on the island tell of phantom voices and footsteps of lights and footsteps, of lights that turn themselves on and off, and of shadowy figures that disappear when approached. One of the most well-known spirits on the site even has a name, albeit a nickname. Charlie has made his presence known so often that whenever a report of weirdness comes in, officers are likely to respond with a casual, Oh that's just Charlie." Charlie announces himself with loud footsteps and the jangling of keys in empty hallways. He also likes to turn radios on and scan between stations. That would be hilarious if that happened here. Hangars 37 and 79 from part of the Pacific Aviation Museum. Ghostly happenings in these buildings include the sound of men talking at night when the buildings are deserted and phantom music playing. In the museum offices, lights go on and off and motion detectors are triggered even when no one is in the building. There is also a mannequin named Kramer, who stands dressed in navy whites in front of a B-25 bomber at the museum. Kramer seems to have a mind of his own because he'll change position overnight. Sometimes his arm is up at night and down at his side in the morning. Sometimes the museum staff will come in for for the day and see that Kramer has picked up a piece of paper overnight and is standing there holding it. Where did the paper come from? Kramer's not saying. Hawaiian Island Ghost Hunters did an investigation at the museum in 2009. They captured an extremely faint EVP while recording next to Kramer and the bomber. With the history moved, a voice seems to whisper, I'm getting tired of goofing around. Quote, the two-part video on the investigation can be viewed on YouTube. End quote. In parentheses. The most haunted area of Pearl Harbor is the sunken USS Arizona. A white memorial stands guard above the wreck and scores of tourists visit the site every day. The Arizona was the ship that suffered the most damage from the Japanese attack. She took four direct hits from 800-kilogram bombs. The last bomb struck a 14-inch powder magazine, which exploded with the impact. That was the death blow for the Arizona. 1,177 crewmen died with her. Most of the bodies remain in the ship, cradled in the warm, shallow waters of the harbor. Many photos taken at the memorial show strange foggy spots, even misty human figures. One specific ghost is believed to be that of an officer who was posted on the deck of the Arizona that fateful morning. As the story goes, he left his post brief to attend to some personal business, right before the attack. Now he blames himself for the ship's demise and wanders the deck forever. He is usually seen at night at low tide and in the pearly dawn mists over the wreck. Decades later, the fiddly-wounded Arizona is still bleeding. Yeah, oil still seeps from her ruptured sides, shimmering in the wicked opalescence on the water. Shimmering in wicked opalescence on the water's calm surface. I've been there, I've seen this. It's just bizarre. You can see these oil slicks in there. The Devaney family visited the memorial in 2011, and Susan Devaney took pictures as mementos of the visit. One picture, shown later on the CNN clip, seemed to show the sorrowful face of a young man looking up through the water. Was it simply a case of uh, pareidolia caused by the Hawaiian sunlight glimmering off the oil-stick water? Or was it something more? The attack on Pearl Harbor represented a blow to American innocence. The men and women who died there were simply going about their business on a Sunday morning in December when their world exploded. The spirits that haunt Pearl Harbor speak to us from a simpler time a time defined by the greatest generation. Their voices are still heard today by those willing to listen. Next story, The Disappearance of the solder Children. There are six faces on the billboard, five children and a young man, a tantalizing glimpse of what could have been. The young man glances upwards and his lips seem ready to curve into a smile. He's a good-looking kid and a dead ringer for the solemn boy in the middle of the group of five. But the five children aren't smiling. The youngest girl seems especially pensive. Maurice, Martha, Louis, Jenny, Betty. These are the Sauter children. Their story is a curious, deeply frustrating mix of tragedy and hope, of loss and terrible yearning. Their story began in flames and ended in mystery. They are all dark-haired, dark-eyed, and be- beautiful children. And on Christmas Eve 1945, they disappeared. George and Jenny Sauter are were, were, were a well-respected, solidly middle-class couple, Italian immigrants. Both they had built a wonderful life together in the new world. George was born, born George was born Giorgio in Tola, in Tula, Sardinia, in 1895. He came to the United States in 1908 when he was 13 years old. His older brother came with him as far as Ellis Island, then returned to Italy, leaving George on his own. The resourceful young team found work on the railroad in Pennsylvania, carrying water and supplies to the workers. George later moved to Smithers, West Virginia. He was smart and ambitious, and soon he had started his own trucking company, hauling freight and coal. One day, George went into a store called The Music Box and met the owner's daughter, Jenny Cipriani. She had been just three years old when her family came to the United States. George and Jenny married and had 10 children between 1923 and 43, busy people. The rapidly growing family moved to Fayetteville, West Virginia. The little Appalachian town had a small but active Italian immigrant population. The Sodders quickly became one of the most respected families in the community. George was admired as a responsible businessman and a devoted father to his brood. He wasn't afraid to share his opinions, but in one area he was curiously silent. He avoided any talk of his past in the old country, and he never discussed why he chose to leave Italy. On Christmas Eve 1945, the Sotter children opened their presents. Nine of the ten children were still at home. One boy was serving in the army, but as World War II had ended that August, he was safe from harm. George, and two of the boys, John and George Jr., went to bed early. The two boys helped their father in his trucking business. The other children were far too keyed up to sleep. They finally went to bed around 10 p.m. to dream of more Christmas cheer in the morning. Jenny took two-year-old Sylvia, the youngest child, to her bedroom and put her down in her crib for the night. Jenny, too, went to bed. Around 12.30, the phone in George's office rang. Jenny woke up and went to answer it before the shrill noise woke up the household. An unfamiliar female voice was on the other end of the line. There seemed to be a party going on wherever the caller was. Jenny could hear raucous laughter in the background and the clink of glasses. Jenny sleepily told the woman she had the wrong number and hung up. On her way back to bed, Jenny noticed that the downstairs lights were on, the curtains were open, and the front door was unlocked. She put everything to rights. Marion was asleep on the couch in the living room, and Jenny assumed the other children were all tucked into their beds in the upstairs bedrooms. She went back to bed. As Jenny was drifting towards sleep, she heard one loud, sharp bang on the roof and a rolling noise. It sounded like something had hit the peak of the roof and rolled down in the gutter. Jenny listened, but no other noise came to her waiting ears. Her eyes closed, and she fell asleep listening to the baby's soft breathing. An hour later, Jenny woke again, this time with the sense that something was terribly wrong. Then she realized that heavy smoke was curling into the room. She snatched Sylvia from her crib and hurried out of the bedroom shouting for George. George met her out on the front lawn. John and George Jr. were also there, singed but safe. They shared an upstairs bedroom and had made their way downstairs through the growing flames at the cost of only some singed share. Marion, too, was safely outside, but the roll call was dreadfully incomplete. Five children, Maurice, Martha, Louis, Jenny, and Betty, were still in the house. The middle children shared two bedrooms on either end of the upstairs hallway, rooms that were separated by a staircase and that staircase was now engulfed in flames. George couldn't get back into the house through the door, so he broke a window. He listed the glass that stripped the skin from his arm. The flames were still too intense for him to get into the house that way. George assumed, as did Jenny, that the middle children were still in their bedrooms, trapped by the encroaching flames. He knew he had to get to the upstairs bedroom windows to rescue them. He raced around to get the ladder he kept propped up against the side of the house, but it was gone. George was running out of options, and the fire department was nowhere in sight. He came up with a desperate plan. He would drive one of his coal trucks up to the house and stand on it to get to the upstairs windows. But despite having been running only hours before, neither one of his two trucks would start. Frantic. George tried to scoop water from a rain barrel next to the house, but the water was frozen solid. He could only stand helpless and watch his home burn. He couldn't even hear the children screaming. Meanwhile... Mary had sprinted to a neighbor's house to call the Fayetteville Fire Department, but she couldn't get a hold of the operator. Another neighbor, who saw the fire as he was driving past, drove to a nearby tavern to call the fire department. Again, the operator wouldn't answer. Seething with frustration, the neighbor hopped back into his truck and drove into town. He woke Fire Chief F. J. Morris and told him that the sold- that the solder home was on fire and the children were still inside. The chief didn't know how to drive the fire truck, so he raised the alarm by using the fire alarm. By, I'm sorry, by using the fire department's phone tree. He called one fireman, who called another, and so on. The fire department was only two and a half miles from the Sauter home, but the truck didn't get there until 8 a.m. Christmas morning. By then, the house was nothing but a charred, smoking hole in the ground. The Sauter's home had been destroyed in less than 45 minutes. George and Jenny were devastated. The distraught parents assumed that five of their children had died in the fire. By 10 a.m., Chief Morris had finished his investigation of the ruins. He hadn't found any human remains, but he assured the solders that the fire had been hot enough to incinerate the bodies. He told the grieving parents to leave the site untouched in case the fire department needed to investigate further. George waited for four days, but Morris didn't return. George covered the rubble in the basement with five feet of dirt, intending to plant a memorial garden for his lost children. On December 30, 1945, the coroner's office issued five death certificates. They all gave fire or or suffocation as a cause of death. But as the pain and horror of those first few days began to recede, George and Jenny Sauter realized that many questions were yet unanswered, and they couldn't shake the feeling they had that their children were still alive. As they pieced together the events leading up to the fire, some strange occurrences stood out. A few months earlier, in the fall, a stranger had come to the solder home looking for work with George's trucking company. He didn't get the job, but during his conversation with George, the stranger wandered to the rear of the house. He pointed at the fuse boxes and casually said, This is going to cause a fire someday. George shrugged off the remark. The fuse boxes had just been inspected by the local fire company and they were in perfect condition. Harder to dismiss was another visitor who had come by the house at about the same time. This fellow was an insurance salesman who tried to sell the solders on life insurance policy. When George declined the offer, the man was furious. Your GD house is going to go up in flames, the man snarled, and your children are going to be destroyed. You're going to be paid for the dirty remarks you have been making about Mussolini. It was true. George, a proud Italian, was an outspoken critic of the fascist dictator. And just before Christmas, the older Sauter sons had noticed a car parked along US Highway, 9, uh, U.S. Highway 21. A man sitting in the car had been watching the younger children with, with unusual intensity as they came home from school. More questions arose with, later investi- with the later investigation. The official cause of the fire was faulty wiring, but Jenny had seen lights on downstairs just an hour before the fire started. A telephone repairman showed the Sauters something interesting. The phone lines had not been burned through, but rather had been cut, 14 feet off the ground and 2 feet from the utility pole. The ladder that was usually kept leaning against the house, the ladder that was missing when George tried to rescue his children, was found in a ravine near the house, and a man was accused of stealing a block and tackle from the solder property during the fire, equipment that could easily have been used to dismantle the solder company truck. Later, Todd or Sylvia found a hard green rubber object in the yard. Jenny remembered the bang on the roof and the rolling sound. George identified it as a napalm pineapple bomb, and it seemed to the solders that the fire had consumed their house from the roof downwards. Most frustrating of all was the lack of physical evidence of the children's deaths. Jenny especially couldn't just wrap her mind around it. How could five children perish in a fire and leave behind no bones at all? Out of curiosity, Jenny began to experiment. She burned bones from the family's dinner table, chicken bones, pork chop bones, even the joints from a beef roast, and the results were always the same. The fire had never consumed the bones entirely. Jenny put the question to an employee at a crematorium who confirmed what she had suspected. Even when a body is cremated on purpose, burned for two hours at a constant 2,000 degrees, there are still charred bones left behind. The solder house fire was intense but it raged fiercely for half an hour or so. It took only 45 minutes to burn to the ground. Also, Jenny had found household appliances in the basement rubble. The metal was charred, but still, on it. still identifiable. To add to the mystery, people began to come forward with possible sightings of the children. A woman claimed she saw the missing children in a passing car while the house was still burning. Another woman who ran a tourist rest area between Fayetteville and Charleston, says she saw the children the morning after the fire. She told police that she served them breakfast and that she had noticed a car over Florida plates in the rest stop parking lot. More tantalizing hearsay came from Charleston, about 50 miles west of Fayetteville. A woman who worked at a hotel there saw pictures of the missing children in the newspaper. She came forward to say that she had seen four of the five kids a week after the fire. In her statement, she said, the children were accompanied by two women and two men, all of Italian extraction. I do not remember the exact date, however. The entire party did register at the hotel and stay in a large room with several beds. They had registered about midnight. I tried to talk to the children in a friendly manner, but the men appeared hostile and refused to allow me to talk to the children. One of the men looked at me in a hostile manner. He turned around and began talking rapidly in Italian. Immediately, the whole party stopped talking to me. I sensed that I was being frozen out, and so I said nothing more. They left early the next day. In 1947, George and Jenny asked the FBI for help. They received a personal letter from J. Edgar Hoover, but his reply was not encouraging. He wrote that it seemed to be a local case and not within the FBI's jurisdiction. This, despite the Sauters' insistence that the children had been kidnapped and taken across state lines. in parentheses. A few FBI agents said they'd be willing to help with the case, if they could get permission from local authorities. But the Fayetteville Police and Fire Departments both refused the offer of help. The Sauters hired private investigator C.C. Tinsley, who turned up some very interesting facts. He found that the insurance salesman who had threatened George Sauter was also on the coroner's jury that ruled the fire accidental. That was intriguing, but Tinsley wasn't finished. He heard some interesting information regarding Fire Chief F. J. Morris from a minister in town. Morris had claimed that no human remains had been found at the site of the fire, but he let it slip to the minister that he found a heart in the ashes. He said he hid it in a a dynamite box and buried it at the scene. This egregious—oh my God! This egregious act of act got Tinsley's attention immediately. He confronted Morris and persuaded him to return to the site and dig up the box. Morris did, but it at his side. They took it to a funeral director who found that it was not a heart at all. In fact, it wasn't even human. It was simply a chunk of beef liver. Later, the soldiers heard rumors that Morris had been desperate to find or plant. Any remains at the site, thinking that would placate the grieving parents and get them off his back. In 1949, Tinsley and the Sodders, along with Washington D.C. pathologist Oscar B. Hunter, did a thorough excavation of the fire scene. The search uncovered several small objects, coins, a partially burned dictionary, and several shards of bone. Hunter sent the bones to, to the Smithsonian Institution for further examination. Their report determined that the bones represented four lumbar vertebrae from one individual who was at least 16 or 17 years old, but no older than 23. Again, this made no sense. The oldest missing child was Maurice, who was only 14 at the time of the fire. The report said it was possible, but not probable, that the bones of a 14-year-old boy could show the maturation of a 16-year-old. To further complicate things, the bones showed no signs that they'd ever been exposed to fire. Whoever wrote the report even found it strange that in a situation where searchers expected to find evidence of five bodies, the only sign of any remains were four vertebrae. The report concluded that the bones were probably in the field dirt that George had bulldozed over the burnt-out basement to create a memorial garden for his children. Parentheses. Tinsley later managed to trace the bones to a cemetery in Mount Hope, West Virginia. What bones from an unidentified grave were doing in the dirt at the Solder home was just another part of the mystery. End parentheses. The case of the missing Solder children was declared hopeless by Governor Oki L. Patterson, as State Police Superintendent W. E. Burchett, but the Sauter family had yet hadn't yet given up hope. In nineteen fifty-two they put up a billboard along US Highway sixteen near Anstead, West Virginia. The solemn faces of the missing children gazed Okay, hang on. Gazed from the billboard. As the headline above them shrieked, What was their fate? Kidnapped, murdered, or are they still alive? The family handed out flyers advertising a five thousand dollar reward. Later, they increased him out to $10,000. Slim leaves crept in from time to time. George saw a picture of some school children in New York City and swore he recognized his daughter Betty, the youngest of the missing children. He went to Manhattan to investigate, but the parents of the girl refused to speak to him. A letter came from St. Louis, a woman said that Martha, the oldest missing daughter, was in a convent there. In Texas, a tavern patron overheard a conversation about a mysterious Christmas Eve fire in West Virginia. And, from Florida, word came that the children were staying with distant relatives of Jenny's. George investigated every single lead, but every time, his search came up empty. Then, in 1968, over 20 years after the fire, an envelope arrived in the mail. It was addressed only to Jenny. It bore a Kentucky postmark, but no return address. Jenny opened the mysterious envelope. Inside was a photograph of a dark-haired, dark-eyed young man in his mid-twenties. Jenny turned the photograph over with trembling fingers. On the back was a cryptid note. Louis Sauter, I love Brother Frankie. Hang on a second. I love Brother Frankie, Alien Boys, 890132, or 35. This was a secret message from Louis sent to reassure his family of his safety. It didn't answer many questions, but the young man in the picture bore undeniable resemblance to Lewis Solder, who was nine years. Okay, who was nine years old at the time of the fire? Parentheses. In fact, he was very nearly ten. He would have celebrated his birthday five days later. End parentheses. George and Jenny hired another detective and sent him off to Kentucky to investigate. They never heard back from the man. From the man, nevertheless. They added the picture of the handsome young man to the billboard on U.S. Highway 16. And they enlarged the photo and hung it over the fireplace. The boy did look so like Lewis, and if there was even a slim chance it was him, now they had a tenuous connection with one of their missing children. Every single clue pointed to the five solder children having survived the fire. All the evidence shouted that they were still alive and out there in the world. But where? Aside from that one cryptic photograph and a handful of possible sightings, the Sauter children were gone, like wisps of smoke in the wind. George Sauter died in 1968. He never stopped believing that someday his children would come home to him. Jenny retreated into her home and built several additions onto it, making a bulwark between herself and the world. She wore the black of mourning from the day after the fire until her own death in 1989. After Jenny's passing, the family took the billboard down, By that time, there was really no use in leaving it up any longer. The last solder child, Sylvia, is in her early 70s. She still keeps tabs on any possible news about her missing siblings. There are no ghosts in this story, only a deep and abiding mystery. There are no ghosts, only two grieving parents who lost half their family in one terrifying night. There are no ghosts, unless you count the five young faces that kept watch for that billboard for so many lonely years. Their solemn gazes, Staring down the West Virginia highway, there are no ghosts, only questions. We'll drink some water and we'll continue. It's hot as these lights, I tell you. Okay. The Weinkauf House fire, hotel fire, the Weinkauf Hotel. In the first half of the 20th century, the United States was haunted by fire. The memory of 1911 was still fresh in the public mind. That was the year that the fire had broken out on the top of three floors of the 10-story ash building. The building, touted as fireproof, had failed to live up to its billing, and 146 employees of the Triangle shortwaist Company, one, two, three, 123 of them young women, had died in the blaze. The early years of the 40s had been especially lethal. In 1940, 198 people had been killed in a fire in a dance hall in Natchez, Mississippi. Two years later, in November 1942, the Coconut Grove Club in the Coconut Grove Club in Boston was the scene of the deadliest nightclub fire in history, when 492 people died and hundreds more were injured. And on July 6, 1944, 168 people, mostly women and children, perished. When fire broke out on a Ringling Brothers circus tent in Hartford, Connecticut, two years after that, the possibility of fire was still very much on people's minds. But life does go on. In early December of 1946, soldiers were coming home from Europe, and the Pacific and America was still and the Pacific and America was still celebrating the Allied victory in World War II. The country was just entering the post-war boom and people were eager to start their Christmas shopping. The Wyckoff Hotel on Peachtree Street in downtown Atlanta was sold out for the weekend. Folks had come into Atlanta for an early start on Christmas shopping, and high school students from all over the state were in town for a youth assembly sponsored by the YMCA at the Georgia State Capitol. The hotel was packed with 280 guests in the building's rooms. The Wyckoff Hotel, built in 1913, was 15 floors high, a steel structure enclosed in concrete. This absolutely fireproof hotel was designed and built without sprinklers, fire escapes, or alarm system. What could possibly go wrong? However, the building met code. So when fire completely destroyed the magnificent Weinkopf Mansion on Peachtree Circle on December 8, 1913, William F. Weinkopf and his wife Grace moved into the penthouse on the 16th floor of the newly built hotel. The wine costs were probably pretty conscious of fire safety after the loss of their lavish manager. At any rate, they felt secure enough in the hotel's design to make it their new home. But when the fire broke out on the third floor in the early morning hours of December 7th, it spread quickly through the building. The single central staircase acted as a hellish chimney, directing toxic smoke to the upper floors. Flames chewed through the rooms filled with wooden furniture, upholstered chairs, draperies, and wooden Venetian blinds. The walls of the room were covered with painted burlap fabric, from the wooden baseboard to a a chair rail four feet above the floor. From the chair rail to the ceiling, the walls were covered with up to five layers of wallpaper. Wooden molding provided a decorative touch for the walls but the ceiling. The voracious fire devoured it all. The Atlanta Fire Department got an alarm call at 3.42 a.m. Fire Chief Charles Styron arrived on the scene with the first trucks. He soon sent out a second alarm, then a third. Styron eventually summoned help from the fire departments outside the city. More than 40 fire trucks converged on the the scene. 32 pumping engines, 4 aerial ladder trucks, 6 service ladder trucks, a floodlight truck, and a a salvage and rescue truck. The aerial ladders would be crucial in saving lives because the Weinkopf, or Weinkauf had no fire escape. The city fire department only had five aerial ladders. The problem was that the ladders on the trucks were too short. Chief Styron had been trying to order an additional 85-foot ladder truck for several years, but with factories retooled for war production, there were simply none to be had. Styron believed that any ladder over 85 feet long wasn't safe he knew that two longer ladders had collapsed under their loads in other cities. And indeed, during the fire, the city's longest aerial ladder truck with a 100-foot ladder went out of service when the hydraulic system failed. Styron quickly moved an 85-foot ladder into position on Ellis Street to replace the longer one, leaving two trucks on Peachtree Street, a 75-foot ladder, and a 55-foot mini-aerial. But all this maneuvering was in vain because the Wyckoff Hotel was 155 feet tall. The fire trucks' ladders were simply and tragically too short to save people trapped on the upper floors. The ladders couldn't even reach guests above the 8th floor. People above that floor had three options. They could fashion a sheet of ropes and slide down them to the tops of the ladders. They could wait out the fire and hope that the firefighters could save the building. Or they could jump for a net. People who chose to jump from the lower floors were generally okay, but the nets were not designed to catch jumpers from higher floors. Many nets ripped ripped on impact, spilling victims onto the pavement. Also, many people didn't realize how hard it would be to hit a target from 80 feet or more in the air. At the front of the building, the marquee was in the way of the jumpers. One woman, aiming for a net, impaled herself on a steel cable jutting out from that marquee. Okay, let's take a look here. Okay. Some would be rescuers tried to put boards and ladders between the windows of the hotel and the windows of the mortgage guarantee building next door. This worked, but barely. The heights of the floors didn't match and the ladders ended up cantered at a 30 degree thirty-degree angle over a 10 foot distance. Some people did try to win out the fire, trusting the firefighters to do their jobs and save the building. One man, and two women in a room tried to wet down everything they possibly could so that the room wouldn't explode when the fire gases were ignited by the heat. They filled the seven sinks with water and stopped at the toilet. But when the mattress began to smolder and the water standing on the floor near the door started to boil, they decided it was time to leave. One man, Reed Home, went to a window, took out his wallet, and pulled out five $20 bills. One by one, he wadded them up and dropped them out the windows of his room, trying to aim so the bills would land at the feet of five different people. He figured some people deserved to be lucky that morning. Reed and his wife Carrie survived the fire and were let out out of the building by firefighters when the fire was out. Other people took their chances with sheet ropes. Gladys Mitchell on the 16th floor put her long black fur coat on over her nightgown before trying to climb down a sheet rope to, to an aerial ladder. Ann Smith was climbing down the rope after her. Ann lost her grip and fell, knocking Gladys off on the way down. Ann's body plummeted to the street, but Gladys' left arm hit the steel cable supporting the Weinkauf sign. The cable snapped under the impact, and the ricochet wrapped the end of the cable around her arm. The long sleeve of the fur coat prevented Gladys' arm from being ripped off and saved her life. From the first alarm at 3.42 a.m., until 6.04 a.m., when the last flames were doused, the Weinkauf Hotel fire officially lasted 142 minutes. The death toll was 119, an average of one death nearly every minute. 32 guests died from injuries, suffered from falling or jumping. 40 suffocated on toxic fumes, and 37 relisted as burn fatalities, although it was believed they had succumbed to fumes before being burned. More than 80% of the deaths happened above the eighth eight floor beyond the reach of the aerial ladders. Sixteen people died on the twelfth floor alone. Forty percent of the Weincoffs more than two hundred eighty guests had died. William and Grace Weinkoff themselves were among the casualties. They perished in their sixteenth floor penthouse. A third of the survivors, sixty four people, had to be hospital, had to go to hospitals, some of them died at the hospital, including 20-year-old Edith Birch, who died just before midnight on Sunday. She had been climbing down a sheet rope when she fell and plunged through the canopy of the hotel. She survived the fall but broke, broke both arms and legs and suffered internal injuries. Her husband, George Birch, had come down the sheet rope after Edith. He was at her side when she died at the hospital. They had been married six months. Nearly 90 bodies had to be removed from the building. Most victims on the lower and middle floors had burned after suffocating. One body was so hot, firemen had to hose it down before it could be lifted onto a stretcher. Charred flesh fell apart at the slightest touch. If the firemen found whiskey in the hotel rooms, they took swigs of it for courage. Firemen opened one door and found a pretty young woman sitting by the window. She was wearing a green dress and her eyes were open. She appeared to be simply sit, sitting near the window, calmly waiting for rescue, but she was dead. Several high school students perished in the fire. The parents of Francis Thompson and Gwen McCoy, two seniors from Gainesville, could not distinguish between the charred bodies of the two girls. Could not, could not be distinguished. Okay. The friends were buried together and they share a headstone. I'm just watching this for time, guys. Ooh. I'm gonna do a quick enlargement here because I have to see what's going on. Okay. Author Sam Hayes and Alex B. Goodwin described the scene on their book at the Winecock Fire, the untold story of America's deadliest hotel fire. The scene that met the Fireman's gaze was one of utter surreal devastation. Light bulbs had melted in the heat of the fire, and ripped in long glass stalactites from their sockets. Telephones were shapeless blobs of black plastic. One blaze of ceiling fans had burned away. Clothes had turned to charcoal and hangers in hangers and closets. Toilets were cracked. The water in the necks of the fixtures had boiled, then turned to steam and exploded in the porcelain. On Christmas Day, 1971, 162 people died in the fire at the hotel taokale in seoul south korea with that tragedy the weinkauf hotel no longer held the dubious honor of being the worst hotel fire in the world it remains however the worst in united states history the fire at our lady of the Angels school queen of heaven cemetery in the chicago suburb of hillside is a beautiful restful spot green in the ordinary summer and dotted with color from the flowers, looked at the graves of loved ones. It's a place to reflect on lives lived and lost. A place where the living can go to find peace and comfort, and a place where the dead can be remembered with dignity. One of the countless memorials here is a blo- is a blocky stone monument covered with names. The, vir- the the Virgin Mary stands in high relief on one side of the block, her head bowed and her hands outstretched, welcome. This is not a fancy Renaissance-style sculpture. Mary is dressed in a simple robe and a small halo sign shines behind her veiled head. The message on the monument is simple too. Quote, Our Lady of the Angels pray for us. Unquote. This is the memorial to the 92 students and three nuns who perished in the fire at Our Lady of the Angels grade school on December 1st, 1958. This tragedy led to a complete overhaul of school safety regulations. It is still considered one of the most awful and horrifying events in Chicago's history. The Blessed Virgin Mary Order of Nuns was founded in 1833 by Sister Mary Frances Clark. In 1867, the Order devoted to education began serving in the Chicago archdiocese. The nuns of the Order were very concerned about fire safety and with good reason. In 1870, their mother house in, in the Debooth, Iowa had burned to the ground. Since then, for 88 years, every member of the order included in their daily prayers a request that they and their students be spared from fire. Our Lady of the Angels grade school at 3820 West Iowa Street in Chicago's Humboldt Park neighborhood was one of the schools served by these nuns. Many Catholic families attended the school, with siblings filling several grades. In 1958, I mean 1958 was right in the middle of the baby boom too with around 1,400 students enrolled at the school. Classrooms were very overcrowded. Sister DeVias recalled that when the Monsignor came to her classroom to hand out report cards, she had to spread her way between an extra couple of rows of desks to meet him at the classroom door. December 1st, 1958 was a cold and cloudless day in the Chicago suburbs. It was a Monday, and the students were back at their desks After the weekend, the children had eaten lunch, and afternoon classes had begun. The fire began after 2.20 p.m. in a 30-gallon trash can at the bottom of the stairwell. The cardboard trash can, with metal rings at the top and bottom to hold it together, was full of paper. After burning through all the paper, the fire smoldered for a while in the confined space under the stairwell. Three walls covered in sheet metal reflected and intensified the heat. The heat continued to build, and finally a window shattered. Oxygen was sucked into the area, causing the smoldering fire in the garbage can to flare up. The flame spread to the wooden staircase, varnished woodwork, and walls covered with 14 layers of paint. The top two layers were particularly flammable. Custodians had used rubberized plastic paint. As it burned, it produced a heavy, toxic black smoke. The stairwell turned into a giant chimney. The fire was stopped from entering the first floor corridor by the fire doors, but it swept up the stairwell and devoured the 80-foot-long hallway that led to the second floor classrooms, burning at over 1,400 degrees. One reason the fire was such a deadly inferno was because of the roof. Over the years, the roof had been sealed several times with hot tar, the new layer being poured over the old. If the old tar had been stripped off before applying a new roof, the fire could have burned through the roof invented itself. As it was, the multiple layers of tar acted like an an, an impermeable seal, great for keeping rain off and fire in. Under that seal, the fire was trapped insatiable, a dragon roaring out of control. Hot air and gases continued to flow up from the basement. They were inside the wall now, feeding through an open shaft that had once held a drinking fountain, now disconnected. The flames filled the small attic above the second floor ceiling moving towards the six classrooms in the north wing packed with 329 students and six teachers. These secondary flames found their way through two ventilation grills in the ceiling and dropped down into the second floor hallway, joining the primary fire. The first sign of trouble in room 209, double checking time, came when a student was going about his daily of collecting waste paper from his classmates. When he bent to pick up the metal garbage basket near the back of the room, for some reason, the basket felt hot. Just then, another student told, told Sister David the teacher that he, smells, that he smelled something burning. When teacher and student tried to open the door to the hallway, smoke poured into the classroom. The infernal raged through the second floor hallway. The glass transom windows over the classroom doors shattered from the intense heat. Smoke and flames poured into the classrooms over the transforms, caught the flammable ceiling tiles on fire, and forced the students towards the windows. Here, younger students ran into their own difficulties, trying to escape the flames. The window ledges were 37 and a half inches off the floor, too high for the little kids to scramble over. Some students, trusting their teacher when she told them to pray for help, sat quietly at their desks as they'd been told, folded their hands, and prayed, watching as the paint on the walls changed color from white to tan to brown. Firemen fought their way into one classroom to find 24 children sitting dead at their desks. The books were still open in front of them. The fire alarm rang only inside the school. It didn't transmit a signal to the fire department. When the fire trucks did arrive, they went first to the wrong address because a housekeeper had phoned in the alarm from the rectory next door to the school. The scene that met the firefighters was among the worst ever encountered by first responders in the history of American Fire Service. The smoke conditions were horrifying, even for trained professionals. Thick black toxic smoke poured from the building, making entry difficult. And breathing apparatus equipped for firefighters didn't exist in 1958. According to one fire chief who fought the blaze, it wouldn't have made any difference. That smoke was so bad, all you would have had was a bunch of dead firemen. The firefighters tried their best, though. They rescued 160 students from the flames. The injured students and teachers were taken to St. Anne's and to other hospitals on the city's west side. St. Anne's, being closest to the school, ended up with the most casualties, almost twice as many as the other hospitals combined. Luckily, the fire happened during the 3 o'clock shift change, meaning that twice the number of hospital staff was present when the injured started pouring in. At St. Anne's, 37 children and three nuns were admitted. Of those, 10 children and one nun were dead on arrival. Two more students died before they could be admitted. The number of victims was horrifying. 90 students and three nuns were injured, not only from burns and smoke inhalation, but also from jumping to escape the fire. The deaths were even more appalling. The fire claimed the lives of 92 children and three nuns. The school was woefully unprepared for a fire. There were no smoke detectors and no sprinkler system. There were fire doors, but only one on the first floor. But only on the first floor. And there was only one fire escape for the entire building. Unbelievably, the school had passed a safety inspection only two months before the fire. The response to the fire was immediate. At Cook, Cook County Jail, inmates lined up to donate blood. A Stateville prison and in Joliet, inmates gave up their cigarettes and candy rations, donating the money to the fire fund. The tragedy was reported all over the world. The BBC called the fire too often for words. The response of the Catholic Church, meanwhile, was somewhat muted. Although the Archdiocese was just as devastated by the tragedy as neighborhood family were, families were, they were ill equipped to provide any real Catholic any, any relief. Catholic Charities sent priests and nuns out into the neighborhood, but their role was to console the survivors, not to provide counseling for them. Consolation was needed, as well as counseling. One of the most heart-wrenching tales to arise from the tragedy was the experience of Stanley Berta. On the day of the fire, Berta was occupying a bed in Cook County Hospital on Polk Street. This was a place where folks, down on their luck, could come for inexpensive health care. And Berta had had more than his share of bed luck recently. A week or so before, Berta had been laid off from his job at Bowman Dairy. This worried him, and he had a wife and four kids to support. Then, on the day after Thanksgiving... He'd been chopping wood in the basement, and a piece of metal, either from the axe or a stray nail, flew up and struck his left eye. Bernard was taken to Cook County, where he had an operation to remove the shard of metal from his eye. As he lay in the hospital after the surgery, Bernard must have been asking himself what else could possibly go wrong. That's when a priest came in and told Bernard that his oldest child, 13 year old Beverly Ann, had been killed in the fire at Our Lady of the Angels. She'd been taken to the Cook County morgue and was now lying on a coal metal table right across the street. From the hospital where her father had his eye out operation okay guys I'm gonna to have to call it with this uh, we will continue um, sometime during the week or even next Sunday but I apologize but uh, I have an appointment I have to be at so sorry about this okay we will continue the story next week I want to thank everybody for coming and I appreciate it tomorrow being Christmas Day I'm going to tell tell the story of the night before Christmas. We're going to talk about some Christmas poems about animals, and just have a general good time about Christmas, okay? And I'll probably read from the uh, the uh, Christmas history book as well. So I want to thank you all for coming, and I appreciate it. And I will see you tomorrow at 6 p.m. Pacific. Have a great eat- have a great rest of your day. Enjoy your Christmas Eve with your family. Bye bye.